check. Make them little money. This week on the Beat the Planner Show, we answer your money questions. Here's how the show works. You email us, ask Pete at PeteThePlanner.com. That's ask Pete at PeteThePlanner.com. And we will, in fact, maybe, possibly, sometimes answer your question. When I say we, I mean not just a guy with a big ego, so he has to say we. I mean me padre. Wait. No. My Spanish is messed up. This, you're not yeah. my father, Damien. No. What is brother in Spanish? If only we had something. Is it Hermosa? Like, Hermosa? No. Uh, no. No. Right, anyway, anyway Damien, we're a financial show. We're not a, a Spanish show, but we uh, are, do offer bilingual services at your money line. And hey, money, oddly enough, you and I are not answering those calls. It's Hermosa, I think. Hermano. Hermano? I bet. What's Hermosa? Is that like drinking uh, it's champagne uh, mimosa? Apple with, yeah, <laughs> apple juice. Okay, Dame, here's what we're starting this week. We're not actually answering any questions. You and I uh, both saw an article this week from a friend of the show. Uh, he's been on the show. Do you know he's been on the show before? I did not know that. It was before you. Yeah, it doesn't uh, matter. Feather, uh, fellow bald guy, Michael Batnick, uh, the irrelevantinvestor.com. So a piece went out in the last couple of weeks from Fidelity, a fun little infographic that described how much money someone should have set aside. Um, and so as it relates to the retirement portfolio and, and people lost their minds because, you know, this is 2020 and people tend to lose their mind over things that are pretty innocuous on the Internet. And so then what our friend, my friend, Michael, did was he sort of broke it down and put some context around what we saw. So, Dame, a question that you probably get a lot, and I know I do, is how much should I have saved based on how old I am in relation to my retirement uh, portfolio? Is that a pretty common question in your parts? It's very common, and I find that it becomes more common with the younger the person is because they're more... Uh, focused on having that specific benchmark, that you know guideline to figure out are they on track, and so they're looking for anything that they can get their hands on to say, yeah, I'm doing all right, or eh, I need to do a little bit of catching up. You know who never asks is uh, people in their fifties. They never ask if they're on on track to retire because they either in, intrinsically sort of feel it and know that they aren't, or they simply just don't want to know. Totally. They they uh, usually have that that feeling and they're usually right. All right. So, Dame, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through five different ages. And based on those ages, I'm going to tell you what Fidelity has figured to be how much money you would need to have set aside for retirement specifically based on what your current income is. Correct? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Do you want to start? Let's just start naturally at the youngest age they have uh, on here at age 30. So at age 30, if you're 30 years old, according to Fidelity, you should have the equivalent of one year's income in your retirement plan. Okay. So Dame, if I can get more specific there, let's say you are 30 years old and you make $51,000 a year. That would mean, according to Fidelity, to be on track for retirement you would have to have $51,000 in those assets, correct? Math checks out. You're right. All right. Math checks out. Now, here's here was a lot of the issue uh, on the internet. 
around this fidelity infograph, people lost their mind about that one. They said, look, millennials and the high cost of college education and now the second recession for this group of people and this, that, and the other thing, uh, it's virtually impossible for a 30-year-old to have the equivalent of one year's income set aside. And I will say this, Dame, I agree it is very, very hard for a 30-year-old to have that. Yet you and I see that rather frequently, honestly. There are a number of headwinds that college graduates are going to face. Uh, the student loans and potential poor job market, other decisions that they've got to make with living in potentially uh, expensive areas of the country that could potentially make this a uh, very challenging goal to, to, to achieve for them. It is possible, but there are a lot of hard decisions that have to be made to achieve it. I like that. You sounded really professional there for just a half second. You said a lot of headwinds. Yeah. I, maybe, maybe one of our colleagues, uh, Brent, is rubbing off on me in, in vocabulary and lexicon. Hey, y'all, we've got a colleague uh, named Brent who uh, is in our marketing department. This guy, man, he'll just put some words together. He's not even a copywriter for us. Like he's doing a lot of graphic stuff and uh, some strategy. Every time he has a phrase, it's like the perfect wording. And I'm like, someday I need to install his word generator into my head. It's really a beautiful thing. All right, Dame. So let's continue on. At age 30, according to Fidelity, you should have one times your current income at age 30 set aside in your retirement plan in order to feel like you're on track. How about age 40, which you and I are certainly closer to than age 30? 3x. You would need to have three times your current income set aside in retirement funds. So let's say you are uh, 40 years old and you're making $70,000 a year. You would need $210,000 set aside in your retirement plan to feel justified that you are still on track to retire successfully. Damon, you you and I were talking just this week on a, a, a client event of ours, uh, and we often talk about that the most difficult task anyone will ever attempt financially is to successfully retire, especially since pensions are not as popular as they used to be. And that's a pretty stunning phrase, especially in these times, Dame, because I think everyone right now, everyone's a little much. A lot of people right now feel like they are currently facing their biggest task. Yeah, there are um, a number of issues that you know, come up here and three times your salary might seem like a, a bunch. But if you take that one number, you've got 10 years to let the, the age 30 double and then you keep doing your thing. So three times by the time you're age 40 uh, is maybe a little bit more reasonable than most people give it credit for. I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I think arguably this gets a little bit easier as we go forward. All right. So. Dame, it also just occurred to me that there's a 0% chance this is one segment. <laughs> yeah, we're yeah. quickly running out. <laughs> All right. So uh, age 50, according to Fidelity, at age 50, you should have six times your current income set aside in your retirement portfolio to know you are on track. So Dame, I'm going to do some math for you. Let's say you have a $100,000 income in your household. Then you would arguably, according to Fidelity, need $600,000 in your retirement portfolio at age 50. Okay. So, Dame, 
What are your thoughts on this? I'll, I'll say, uh, I'll, well, Michael Batnick's point, who wrote a blog post about this, which it turns out we're going to probably be getting to in the next segment, what his point really is. So let, I guess let's just hit Fidelity's side of it now. Is that reasonable? Six times your salary at age 50? If you're a diligent saver from the very beginning, yeah, I, I think it is. You go from 40 to 50, you're going to have a bunch of really tough decisions to make during that time period of your life with potentially kids going off to college and trying to fund a whole bunch of goals. But if you look at what returns can do for you between the age of 40 and 50, it's reasonable. Yeah, here's what I've learned from this piece, despite the fact that I've known this my entire adult life. If you start at 22 and 23, it's in the bag. It's done, baby. If you only start caring in your 30s or 40s, it turns into a grind. And that's not to say don't grind because the alternative to not grinding and get your money away for retirement, it's much worse than what we're talking about. Yeah, totally. All right, so let's do this, Dame. We're up against it. Let's take a break, pay some bills. Sorry, I hate when I say that. I don't know why I continue to do it. Uh, We're going to come back. I'm going to tell you how much, according to Fidelity, you would need set aside at age 60 and then at age 67. And then we're going to talk to you about why the irrelevant investor, Michael Batnick, friend of the show, why he thinks this actually works, but what scares him the most about this infograph. All that is coming up next on the Pete the Planner Show. I'm Pete the Planner. Back on the Pete the Planner show. Boy, Dame, during the break, the show really heats up. Why don't we just record during the breaks and then we wouldn't have to do another segment? Because I don't think I can have anything intelligent to say for the next nine minutes and 23 seconds. Well, just everybody will get to listen to everything we just said again on the uh, Facebooks. Taking a look this week at uh, a piece by Michael Batnick, theirrelevantinvestor.com, as he takes a look at an infographic that Fidelity put out recently, which discusses how much money you need to have saved at particular ages in relation to your current income to prove that you are on track. So we covered in the first segment, Dame. If you are 30 years old, in order to prove that you are on track to retire successfully, you would need one times your salary. So if you make 40 grand and you're 30 years old, you would ideally want uh, 40 grand in your retirement investments to prove to yourself you're on track. If you're 40 years old, it's three times your income. At age 50, you would need to have six times your income to prove you are officially on track. Now, Dane, we move on to age 60. 60, eight times, eight times. So let's, let's do some numbers. Let's say you're 60 years old and you make $50,000 a year. You would need 400,000 American dollars set aside in your retirement portfolio to be on track to retire successfully at age 67. It's, I think I find it most interesting that from 40 to 50, you need double. But from 50 to 60, it's less than double. So you're allowed uh, a slightly more conservative portfolio, I'm guessing, in here is what we're seeing. But you got to keep making those contributions. That's going to be really important. You know, our fr- during the break, our, our good friend Gordon um, made the point of essentially, does this include Social Security and, and that? Based on Fidelity's calculations, they're taking into account social security income at, at retirement. 
right? So they're, they're even taking into account the social security income you would have. And then they're stacking on top of that, these supposed assets. All right, Dame age 67, which for the point of this fidelity piece is retirement age, you would need to have 10 times your retiring income. (laughs) So let's say on your retirement day, you go, you have your cake party. Everyone says they're going to miss you. And in that previous 12 months, you made $70,000, $70,000, they would, the, Fidelity says in order to know that everything's going to be okay, you would need to have $700,000. Dame, this one I don't actually buy. Do you? Really? Really? Yeah, I struggle with that one, right? And, and the reason is because I've seen people successfully retire on significantly less than 10 times their final year salary. Brings up the very interesting question. What do you consider a successful retirement? Right? Sure. Go ahead. What, I mean, how, how do you want to spend that? Well, some people, uh, as we know, can make a lot of money and not need very much of it. Yeah. Some people can make a very modest income and they use every single penny of it from month to month for any number of reasons. Maybe their life circumstances require that. Or maybe they just... Uh, spend more than they should. Uh, maybe it's a combination thereof. So 10 times your income, your final income in an account may be more than enough for a lot of people. For other people, it may not scratch the tip of the iceberg. That doesn't Do you, make sense. <laughs> why would you scratch the tip of the iceberg? Maybe it likes it. Maybe it needs you know an what, itch. You know what did scratch the tip of the iceberg? The, the whole of the Titanic? Hmm. That seems morose. You said we weren't going to go there today, Pete. I'm sorry, everybody. That was rude. You know what? I'm sorry. That was rude. I I, I never want to be in a position to have to make public apologies. And that was one. But here we okay. are. But here we are. Okay. Here, here was Michael Batnick's point. Okay. So, so the whole reason we're having this discussion today, because the irrelevant investor.com, Michael Batnick said, you know, I first looked at this and I was like, no way. You know, he's basically doing kind of what we're doing, but then he decided to run a bunch of data on it. So here's what he figured out. A, this is incredibly realistic. B, like we said, this is incredibly realistic if you start in your 20s. And C, this all falls apart really quickly if you have massive increases in income along the way. What we've just discussed, and this this sort of blew my mind until I thought about it for a half second. What he's saying is if you have 2.5% on average wage increases throughout your career, which actually works out to a nice wage increase in the end, but if it's sort of steady that way, you can do this. This all makes sense. Fidelity's right. However, if you have a huge pay jump or a good example of this is let's say you are uh, in commission sales and you just get better and better and better at your job. But by huge leaps, as commission salespeople sometimes do, this falls apart really quickly, Dane, because of lifestyle creep. Yeah, lifestyle creep is a big chunk of it. But also, if you uh, stay in one tier, for example, for that first 10 years, and then you have a huge jump in salary. Well, you've been saving at a certain rate for a certain salary those first 10 years, not your new salary as well. So you're playing catch up from the jump. As soon as you get that big salary increase or that big wage increase, you've got to make up for a little bit of lost time 
with the savings that you've already done as well. So you can't keep that same rate necessarily and expect to come out where you were on track for. You know what I think some people do? Did I ever tell you my weatherman story? I had to have told you my weatherman story. So there was a weatherman that was at a local station who I was friendly with, still friendly with, and he was thinking about retiring. And so he decided just in discussions with him in the newsroom one day that the best approach for him was to turn up the risk in the last five to 10 years of his retirement because he was falling short of the retirement goals and his retirement age really mattered to him. And so he said, well, what do you think about this? Naturally, there are a few different ways to get toward your goal if one of the factors is, is, is struggling. He didn't have enough capital, right? So he needed to either uh, retire later mm-hmm. or save more or increase his rate of return to still accomplish his you know, hard goal, which was age-based. So he's like, what do you think? Well, damn, it's obvious what I think. Um, and it's obvious what you think. Turning up your risk for most people, especially at the end of the conversation, is not the way to go. You can't jeopardize your goal uh, by by changing a, a, a factor like your risk that late in the game. Because you could just as easily force yourself to work longer because you experience a couple of really bad years in the market and, and returns that you don't have a choice but to work longer anyway. So I would much rather see somebody play it conservatively at that point, bite the bullet, work an extra year, or maybe just work part-time for a few years after that and uh, reduce the demand that you have on your savings to get into that retirement phase. Yeah. So here's what we're going to do. Damon, the next segment, we're going to talk about a, a trick that has been around in financial planning as long as financial planning has been around as to how to solve this whole problem. Really, it, it cuts it cuts a lot out. But I also, before we get there, though, I, I want to tell people, if you are not on track, according to Fidelity, you got a couple different options. Number one, it doesn't take into account that you start eliminating obligations as you get closer to retirement. The assumption that it makes is that you always live at the same income level and you always need that money. Here's the thing, Dame, 10 years from now, you and I've talked about this. 10 years from now, I need a lot less money than I need right now. Mm-hmm. I'm still in the midst of paying off our home. I got two very expensive children in terms of trying to fund their college and all their activities. And from time to time to get them to stop talking so I can think straight and not go crazy. Right? 10 years from now, none of those are an issue. House is paid off. Kids are in college. So on and so forth. So this idea that at age 42... I need to have whatever times my income now to deal with later is, you know, it doesn't make sense. So coming up after the break, more on this and that. I'm Pete the Planner. This is the show. Back on the Pete the Planner show. If you're just joining us, we're in the third segment. What are you even doing? Sorry, that seems a little judgmental. Damien Dunn uh, is here. I am Peter Dunn. We're not related. Have we ever done any research like on the old family tree to see if we're in the same family tree? Have we done that? No, I offered a 23andMe test, but you said no. You offered to take my blood, you vampire. Well, it was for a good cause. Here, Pete, I need your DNA. It's like, I've seen several movies. I'm not doing that. For the show. For the show. I I don't want to do that. I feel like, because if I commit a crime someday and then they've got my DNA and I don't 
Okay, Dame. So in the previous segment, we talked about Fidelity's benchmarks uh, revolving around how much you need to have set aside by whatever age to retire at age 67. I want to shortcut this whole process and give you a financial planning trick that has been used for decades. It really is one of the first things I ever learned in the business back in the late 90s. And it is also a beautiful, overused, but now uh, rarely used metaphor. And it revolves around defining your destination. Like what year are you retiring? If you don't have a retirement date or even year, what are you doing? Right? Because you have to work backward on that math to make it work. Like, and I'm not asking people to walk around self-identifying as a person who's going to retire at 63 or 71. I don't care about any of that. Keep it to yourself. But how in the world, Dame, can you possibly do financial planning, which is just math, if you don't know when you've transitioned from accumulation phase to distribution phase, Dame, how does anyone do it without that? Retirement planning is an incredibly complex process because of all the variables that are included in coming up with a reasonably solid financial plan. It only goes to um, your benefit to try and identify some of the things that you can control which would be the date of retirement is first and foremost. So if you can figure out when that date is, or at least when you think you want it to be, then the planner or yourself, uh, if you choose to go that route, can start doing the math backwards and figuring out what's it going to take to get the amount of money I need by that date. Now, if it gets there a little bit faster, fantastic. If you need to wait a little while and accumulate some more, You'll know that too. You'll have the idea and the information that you need to prepare for successful retirement. So, Dame, it turns out that I like to plan every aspect of my life. I don't know if you knew this. Oh? Yeah. And it, and it really tortures everyone around me. Coworkers, colleagues like you, my life partner, Mrs. Planner. And it's awful. Like, for instance, we're going on a date tonight. And so for the entire week, I've been menu scouting a restaurant that I've been to a tremendous number of times and could recite their menu to you, but I just stare at it probably 13 to 19 times a day. And I've been refreshing the menu today just for some reason. I just keep looking at it. So I plan everything, including what I'm going to eat tonight at 7.15 and the cocktail I will order when I sit down. Dame, so for me to say you would never go on a vacation not knowing where your destination is and when you'll get there, that's a reasonable thing for someone like me to say, but there are people out there that say, no, I just like the spontaneous nature. Let's just see where it goes. I don't want to be friends with that person. Dave, you can't go on a family across the country vacation, not knowing when you're getting to a particular destination, because that's where you're going to sleep for the night. You have to know the end information to calculate the rest of it. It's the same thing with retirement planning. That is the metaphor that has existed in our industry for 30, 40 years easily that has once again gotten forgotten, but it's beautiful. I think I would push back on the family vacation thing, not knowing where you're going to stay that night. You've never just started saying, okay, we're going to go from here to there, but we're going to have to sleep over somewhere. And depending on the, I don't know, the, the temperament of the kids or just my ability to deal any longer, maybe we stop, uh, 50 miles shorter than we planned on it. You've never done that? A couple things. Let me tell you. The pro tip is actually to drop your family in one town and then you keep going. Oh. You stay somewhere else. Number two, we have done that. I guess what I should say is the final destination. Oh, okay. 
Okay. So we all know where you're staying, your VBRO or whatever. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Mrs. <laughs> Planner is in charge of that stuff. Dame, is it, does it, would it surprise you that there are some elements of my life that I have no idea how anything works because we have different assignments and tasks in our house and I have no idea how some things that are pretty logistic don't work. If I'm being perfectly honest here in front of dozens of people, there's some things I don't want you worrying about or taking care of. I, I, I want Mrs. Planner handling those things for everybody's benefit. Oh my gosh. I know. You know what? Uh, to this point though, and of course we always broadcast on Facebook live on Fridays at noon as we record the show, as we broadcast it to you on the weekends or for the podcast, uh, good friend, well, friend for several decades of mine, uh, Nick comments on Facebook and it's a really good question, Damon. I put it to you. Have you found any evidence that more spontaneous people have any or more or less difficulty Saving. Of course, this will be anecdotal evidence because we don't think we've done official research on that. But go ahead, Dan. What do you think? Anecdotally, yeah, I think spontaneous people typically have a, a bigger problem saving if they don't have it systematized. If they've got it set up to where it's an automatic deduction, like a 401k contribution, or it just automatically goes into an IRA and they live off the rest, then they've got a pretty good shot at getting their goal. But if it's requiring them to make that, that transaction, each and every month or every couple months or every year or whatever it is, the money may not be there because they've, they are living life in the moment and they're trying to take advantage of everything that they can. So spontaneous people can struggle with this if they don't take the steps they need to make sure it's out of their hands. Now, I have to say I am a spontaneous spender or and I've definitely gotten better, better at that over the years. By better at that, I mean less spontaneous spending. But to, to Nick's point here, and Damien, maybe to your point, the way I can justify that and still achieve what I want to achieve financially is because I TCB. I take care of business first. I, I, I fund our goals fully. And then whatever we spend after that, it doesn't actually matter. I mean, here, I've written a couple books on budgeting and we talk about budgeting all the time. But Damien, here's the way I budget. I save 100% to the goals to fund them appropriately we promise not to go in debt. So then whatever else we spend doesn't actually matter. It doesn't impact us. It's kind of the goal of budgeting, isn't it? You just, yes. you just manage to take care of everything up front and whatever's left over, you're free to do whatever you want with. So whether you're the type of person that needs to budget every single penny and you take care of things as they come throughout the month, fantastic, good on you. But if you're going to take something like Pete's method, just make sure everything is covered up front and then you do whatever you want on the backside, that is fine. I think people use this method that I'm describing quite a bit, but where they fall short is that they don't actually know how to properly fund. They don't hit the right level. And Dame, it's all based on this idea we're talking about in this segment. They don't choose their retirement age. And unless you choose your retirement age, which sounds boring and unnecessary, especially if you just entered the workforce and you're like 25 years old, why would I, why would I look 40 years ahead when I just started? It's so that you can spend whatever you want once you've taken care of business. That's why. Take care of yourself. Identify some very basic things. It doesn't mean it can't change later if you want it to, but you'll be aware of the uh, the changes that are going to have to happen to make sure you stay on track. So do the legwork up front and reap the benefits in the long run. 
And yes, it's math. And there's and yes, as our Slack exchange yesterday morning validated, Dame, there are some variables that can really mess this up. Sure. Inflation rate, all sorts of things. Um, but I'll say this. There's really no excuse why any of us can't know exactly what we need to set aside every single month. And whether you decide to do it, it's between you and the man in the mirror at that point, or the lady in the mirror, or however the person in the mirror in front of you appears, right? Yeah. Be honest with yourself. That's going to be pretty key to, well, a lot of things in life, but be honest with yourself. (laughs) I feel like the show just almost took a turn into like a real self-help situation. Almost. All right, Dame, coming up after the break, what are we? Oh my gosh, we're in the fourth segment already. Biggest waste of money of the week. We've got a doozy this week. It's a really good one. Uh, and more frivolity, current events. And we've kept it pretty, uh, pretty happy this week. Two weeks in a row, maybe three weeks in a row that we've kept it interesting. I'm Pete the Planner. This is the show. This week's biggest waste of money of the week right here on the Pete the Planner Show is every week. The BWOM, B-W-O-M, biggest waste of money is some item or service that, well, is a little intense. Today, it's the world's most expensive potato chip, and it runs you $15 per chip. Now, Dame, a bag of potato chips is, of course, one of the cheapest snacks you can buy. That is, unless you opted for the extremely limited edition set of chips from Swedish brewery St. Eric's. That's Eric with a K, which that's a whole other thing. Uh, Boxed in an absurdly fancy package made from absurdly special ingredients. So, Dame, here are the five flavors. There's five chips to a gift pack. It comes in, you get five chips, and it's $75 for five chips. Here's what you get. The first flavor is Matsutake, which, of course, is uh, one of the world's most sought-after species of mushrooms. You knew that. Of course. Of course. Did you know that? No. Should I admit that I knew that? (laughs) I think we all knew you knew that. If I want to be a man of the people, shall I admit that I knew that? Anyway, uh, Matsutake is flavor number one. Number two, truffle seaweed. Well, that's pretty understandable, right? Um, Number three, crown dill. The crown dill used was handpicked on the, I can't pronounce that word, B-J-A-R-E with like four different European symbols over the letter. (laughs) The Bjari Peninsula in southern Sweden and selected for its fresh yet powerful flavor. So, so far we've got matsutake, Truffle seaweed, crown dill. Flavor number four, Dame, is Lexand onion. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they've got that at Ikea, I think. (laughs) Probably. And then number five is India pale ale wort. I know what that is. I just never thought that would be put on a chip. Where's the barbecue? Isn't that sad that there's $75 for five chips and there's not a barbecue chip? That's criminal. They're made from a specific type of potato called the oh boy, Amaranus, a steep, stony slope in a south-facing location where almond potatoes are cultivated in very limited numbers. Wow. So, Dame, I, about 20 years ago, 
I got home from work around 4 p.m. because that's how I used to roll. <laughs> and I turned on Oprah Winfrey because I like to watch the Oprah Winfrey, Winfrey show, Oprah Winfrey show about 20 years ago. And I'm watching Oprah and Oprah's on there. And she said it was something about like indulgences or something. And she said, y'all, this is the way Oprah said, she said, my favorite indulgence is just to sit at home on my couch and eat an entire bag of potato chips at once. And Dame, it was in that moment that I thought I married the wrong person. Like, because Mrs. Planter would not eat a chip. But Oprah and I, we would have been like have a, a deep seated relationship based on chips because I can sit and eat chips. But for $75 for five chips, I would be broke. You get through that, that five chips really quick, though. I mean, you get on with your day. Dame, there's a trend in the wedding space these days where couples are telling people essentially what to buy them on their wedding invitations, uh, including recently a couple's wedding RSVP allegedly offers better meals for guests who give expensive gifts. Dame, what in the world? I've actually seen something like this where... And it was always very passive aggressive. They would give you the, the wedding registry, but the lowest priced item on the wedding registry was like 100 or 250 bucks. So you couldn't buy them like a $7 spatula and say, good luck. You'd have to buy them like a silver tea set or something crazy like that. What is going on? Was it last week we had the, uh, the Christmas gift uh, exchange that was no less than $200? Is it, was that last week? Yeah, that... Yeah, that was in the last couple of weeks. That was wild. I I, uh, I told that story more than once this week, by the way. This is insane. And uh, gosh, it drives me nuts. Stuff like this. Uh, also this week, it is worth noting that uh, more details on Vice President Biden, or I guess candidate Biden. I never know what to call people. Joe Biden? Joe. Uh for his call to overhaul the 401k tax breaks. I finally dug into it this week to understand it a little bit more than I had understood it. Did you have the chance to do the same? Um, I had read the article prior or another article prior to the one that you shared. And I read this one as well. So I, I think I've got a reasonably good idea of what's going on. Okay. So correct me when I'm wrong. Okay. Do you notice I didn't say correct me if I'm wrong. I said yeah. when I'm wrong, because I will get this wrong. So as it stands now, if you use the traditional 401k benefit, as opposed to the Roth, you deduct your contributions off of your taxable income in the tax year. So I'm going to use big round numbers. Let's say you have a hundred thousand dollar income and you put $18,000 in the 401k that year, then you're only being taxed on $82,000. Correct, Dame? Correct. And if you make $50,000 and you only contribute $3,000 to the 401k that year, then your taxable income only goes down to $47,000. And one of the concerns about this, according to the Biden campaign and some other people too, is that that is unfair to lower income earners because they get less advantage because they're able to save less. And it's the people who make higher incomes that need that tax advantage less. It should actually go more to the people who need the tax advantage more. Correct? Are we so far so tracking? 
Yeah, I think it has more to do with the uh, the tax rate that's going to be levied against uh, the the remaining taxable income than how much is being contributed. But that that is a portion of it. So what this bill? It's not it's not even a bill. It's a proposal. Proposal. I feel like I'm gonna have to watch an after what is that uh, after school special? I'm just a bill yeah. to figure that out. Anyway, it's a proposal that would turn instead of a tax deduction, it would turn it into a tax credit. And so what that does is it evens the playing field by bringing up the tax advantage for people on the lower end. And oddly enough, in the example they gave in the piece, it actually slightly increases the tax advantage for the people on the higher end, but at least it increases the people on the bottom end more. And so where at first when I read this proposal, I thought, well, you know, there's very little chance anything in the retirement industry gets passed because the retirement lobby is pretty thick and there's no way you can get anything through. But once I read that, Dame, it has more of a chance to pass than I originally thought. You think so? More than I originally thought. Okay. I, I still think the slim chance that this type of change happens. Um, I, I'm certainly in favor of moving from a deduction to a credit, but uh, I'm not sure the structure of this is going to pan out uh, like the the campaign would hope. You know what? I, I, I strikes me more than anything here when the federal government, I was just going to say arguably, but it's sort of hard to argue against this, needs funding more than ever before to not only pay for current programs, but future programs and the giant debt that we have. I think throwing around something like this that means less tax revenue for the government seems problematic to me. It seems like if they were going to get really serious about some of the debt that we carry, that they would just do away with the traditional side and make everything Roth, pay it up front, and we'll give it to you, uh, give you your free ride going forward. Remember a couple of years ago when they were going to change the 529 tax benefit, and then there's always talk that the Roth structure will change someday. I'm still not convinced that the Roth doesn't get robbed someday of its tax advantage because of our country's struggles. I hope it doesn't, but nothing would surprise me these days. You know, is that not the most true statement of the day? Sadly. All right, Dane. Well, thanks for being on the show this week. Um, I mean, I, I, I mean that because I enjoy being with you and it is, is part of your job description. So, Dane, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Um, thanks to all of you for watching as well on Facebook Live and for listening on whatever radio station you're listening on. Hello to all of you. And of course, the podcast, which you can get at wherever you get podcasts. I'm Pete the Planner. This is the show. Sending you good vibes because good vibes are all the budget. See you next week.